Okay. So I'll start reading it in my best Jenny Murray voice. Welcome to Witch, the Women in Technology Creative Industries Hub. My name is Bishi, the co-founder, artistic director, and the host of this podcast. My relationship to technology first came as a fan. Um, I was a big fan of women such as Wendy Carlos and Laurie Anderson and Delia Derbyshire. I was actually a technophobe. I'd managed to convince myself that it was too difficult for me. It was out of my depth. I wasn't very good at it, but I knew that I loved it. And despite the fact that I was actually programming and, and writing on my laptop, on Logic from my late teens, I just didn't have any faith in it. And then it was through collaborating with Matthew Harden, who is a musician and artist. And just over the years of being at it more and more, I realized that actually this is really my thing. Which was born to celebrate women at the intersection of creative tech and science. I had been aware from touring my own music and AV projects internationally that there was a growing scene of artistic and multifaceted women, each using technology in interesting and radical ways. I wanted to identify who we were and help build a community. Just a note, by women, I mean non-binary and those who identify as female. Which is gender inclusive. Everyone is welcome. So the name witch was a little bit of a cheeky wink to the witch trope. The witch is a woman who has traditionally always had a lot of knowledge, but she's always been feared. We can think of witches through Hollywood, like the Wicked Witch of the West, and then there's Glenda the Good Witch, Sabrina the Witch. My recent obsession with pop culture witches came in the form of being a fan of American Horror Story Coven, uh, the Ryan Murphy series, which starred Sarah Paulson, Angela Bassett, and Jessica Lange. I was really interested in the fact that they were all older, glamorous broads who were extremely charismatic. I feel that looking at pictures of Daphne Oram and Delia Derbyshire, they are really giving me witch vibes. Started in October 2016, I've curated guests such as Imogen Heap, Animatronic, Mira Calix and Lone Taxidermist. Witch has recently presented a live salon at the Tate Modern. We have a lot more up our sleeves. Watch this space. People will know the stylophone because you have this kind of ribbon bar and you've got this metal thing that you use a little kind of like metal pen to yeah. trigger. To do Peter Piper for me, please. Peter Piper picked a... What's the rest of the rhyme? I don't remember. Peter Piper picked... A pepper. A, a pickle pepper. Or like, is, is there another word in there? Not sure. Porridge. <laughs> I had porridge today. Pickled peppers and porridge. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. This brings me on to welcoming the first ever guest for the Witch Podcast, Hannah Peel, a Northern Irish singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, composer and arranger, now based in London. Peel has released records as a solo artist, as a member of the psychogeography indie rock group The Magnetic North, and with many other collaborators, including the electronic group John Fox and the Maths and Beyond the Wizard's Sleeve. 
Her previous album, Awake But Always Dreaming, was released by her own imprint record label, My Own Pleasure Records, in 2016 and was awarded number one electronic album of the year by Electronic Sound magazine. Her most recent album, Mary Cassio, Journey to Cassiopeia, is described as a seven-movement odyssey composed for analogue synthesizers and full, traditional, 29-piece colliery brass band exploring one person's journey to outer space. She does this by recounting the story of an unknown, elderly, pioneering, electronic musical stargazer and her lifelong dream to leave her terraced home in the mining town of Barnsley, South Yorkshire, to see Cassiopeia for herself. Hello, Hannah, and welcome to The Witch Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's so lovely that you're here. My first question was about your musical training. What was your musical training and what instruments were you trained in? I suppose from an early age, when we left Northern Ireland, we moved to Yorkshire and the first thing I was given was a, a free brass instrument <laughs> um, and told to, uh, to play that. Um, my mum got us piano lessons I learned the violin as well so I could play the fiddle with my father as well so there was lots of music from very early on I did all my grades and you know studied music at A level and everything and then went to a college called Lippa which is in Liverpool yes and that was fantastic so I did performing arts music there which was more kind of based around musicals and performing and especially collaborating with dancers and actors and lots of different sound and tech people which was incredible so you have this multitude of talent in this one bubble of a building Um, so it was really really exciting. Where did your relationship to technology begin? Ah well I suppose when I was studying in Liverpool I I did my final year of the degree was um, to do silent film composition so I came down to London went to the BFI went into the kind of the realms the basement and got out a load of tapes that I sat and watched with a friend these were like you know 1930s like Dada films really incredible footage and took three of them away got them digitized and licensed and able to use as part of my final degree so um scored the music to that so there was instant kind of like I really wanted to write for digital film in a way that is visually captivating. And what programme did you use to score these films on? So that was, yeah, yeah, Logic, and a very early version of Logic then. um, I had a really old Apple Mac, the ones where they were coloured and you could see through the back. Um, I remember those, yeah. (laughs) I can't remember what they were called, but... And then I went graduated onto an eMac, which was not coloured in, but... um, it was a, a learning curve and learning how to do click tracks and that kind of started off a thing. But as I graduated, we took that to the big chill festival. We did a Manchester film festival and it was like a 12 piece band with the films. And it was a really wonderful wow. show at the time because I was only 20. So yeah. it was a real kind of like learning curve. And what film did you score for? There was The Colour Box, which was the post office's original kind of advertising film, which was loads of streams of colour. There was Rennie Clare's Interact, and another one from the Glasgow Film School, which I can't remember the title. But they were really fantastic, kind of experimental at the time. So as soon as we finished that project... I wanted to do it as a two-piece rather than with 12 musicians and Ableton had just been launched at the time so we 
I did it with an, another girl who is an amazing marimba player and percussionist and really into a drum and bass programming. So Excellent. Uh, we had loads of, we wrote all these tunes together using Ableton and worked with visual artists um, to create each tune. So it wasn't just like, oh, here's the music and then the film is added afterwards or here's the film and then the music. It was all done in collaboration at the same time. So we would take samples of the film and VGDJ those samples as well. So you had a true audiovisual approach to it already. Yeah from that really young age. I just was fascinated by that. I'd seen the cinematic orchestra do A Man With A Movie Camera live and the amount of shivers that I'd felt in my body watching that and seeing that come alive with the live music was just a bit of a revelation at the time. So it was really wonderful to try and recreate that and try and investigate what is possible with music and film and what the balance should be. Around the same time was the Liverpool capital of culture and of course like if you're based in the city people were asking for do you want to apply for some grants and so I applied for a massive massive grant (laughs) to do Liverpool's first kind of AV festival. It's called AV08. There was an amazing building, which is the air vent for the Mersey Tunnel. It's a beautiful Art Deco building. And inside it is these incredible machines, like from the original machines that they use to control everything from there. Oh, that's incredible. And it's all like green and just amazing. So um, I wanted to take the insides and put them on the outside and create a visual installation with large scale projectors. So like completely transforming the building, which, you know, now is quite a lot more common. But then to... Even get those projectors for a week was about forty grand. Kind of. Well, projectors aren't that cheap. No, Um, (laughs) especially not (laughs) big, large ones. Um, So I put together a festival, which was all AV-related music and film, and um, spent a year doing, you know, going to the council for planning and permission and health and safety. And um, that is so badass. No, that's really badass. How old are you at this point? <laughs> oh, at that point I was 23. That's incredible. Yeah, it was. It really <laughs> is. I suppose going back to the original question of like, how did you get into the tech side? Throughout that whole period, I became the curator and didn't do any music. And so as soon as it finished, I went straight back to music because I'd missed it so much because they you know like dealing with all that and contracts and stuff it was such a learning curve I had a w- wonderful kind of team to support but it, it was just like I do not want to do this <laughs> ever again really yeah I just really missed and you know we got to perform and we'd put a did a big stage yeah. in front of the building and everything and it, there was some really um, magical events but it was so much work at the time I was just like I'm not ready for this I was writing a little bit of music for theatre while I was up there and I needed some things that turned round so naturally you go to like gramophones and things that are visually can turn and make noise and I found these programmable music boxes online and just instantly kind of was drawn to it because there was no cables there was nothing you just literally had to punch hole in paper and it was just the most magical feeling and very therapeutic. Music boxes are fascinating. I recently just watched the Hedy Lamarr documentary, which is called Bombshell. Hedy Lamarr is dubbed as uh, the woman who invented Wi-Fi. She developed frequency hopping technology with the composer George Antiel, and it has been the basis of GPS and Wi-Fi technology 
And I know that Georges Antille was very inspired by player pianos. And I think music boxes and player pianos are similar in how they work. Do you think the music box is an early form of technology? Can it be seen in that way? Without any doubt. I mean, you know, like even early knitting machines were the same concept and early machines were all punch card systems. Yes. Yes. So that was really exciting and you know I suppose the one thing that I found really interesting was taking the 80s covers which that time of drum machines and everything was really coming to the forefront so it felt quite ironic that you were punching the holes and then dissecting the music and so giving that for example Tainted Love you listen to the beats and it is quite cold and logistically like you know midied playing something like that by hand and you know where you've got any nuances and creaks and cranks and you can change the speed with your hand physically just felt like such a relief and yeah so did you program these music boxes yourself yeah oh right okay great I didn't quite get that because you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I know, I wish it was a machine that you could like program and then it would just make hundreds of them, but no, yeah. it's all done by hand. So it normally takes oh, about wow. 12 hours or more to do a track. Oh, wow. And so how many, like, do you have to have individual music boxes for each track? Yeah. And how many did you program in that case? So I started off with like, th- like four and that became the Rebox EP and that was in 20. 20- 2009 and then now I think there's probably I've got about 50 because you gradually just build on it and people ask for things and and it works very well for tv and people like to put them on adverts and stuff so so it's been a nice little kind of tool yeah um and it really helped me kind of leave that curating world and go back into music making yeah and so you've brought a little instrument today in the studio, a stylophone. <laughs> People will know the stylophone because you have this kind of ribbon bar and you've got this metal thing that you use a little kind of like metal pen to yeah. trigger. But this is a new version that has uh, lots of different kind of synth effects. So yeah. you've got an envelope, which if I play this, you can just hear it yeah. affects the sound. Oh, how fabulous. Um, and you have an LFO giving us the full R2D2 there. <laughs> so you get these beautiful effects. Let me turn this up a little bit. So you can create loads of stuff like that. Uh, then you have the delay, and the delay oh, obviously is where you. Oh, that's great, because I've got an earlier version of the stylophone, but it didn't have a delay on. <laughs> no, and it's, it makes it really magical, so yeah. you can really get some good effects. Because I think at the end of the day, you do get, it, you know, it, is, it does feel like a little toy. It's really wonderful, but it's great for just carrying around. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, you have a filter, um, which allows you to take out various... You can hear I'm taking the filter down. Yeah. And take out frequencies and put them back in again. Really enjoyable. And actually, someone sent this recently, so I didn't have to buy it. So it was my first thing I've ever been given. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> so. 
Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship that your music has towards science and scientific research. I know that you've worked with themes surrounding memory and dementia. Um, could you explain a little bit about this? I think the science part of it came about because of the need to talk about it. The album that I did in 2016 was called Awake But Always Dreaming and it was... I suppose, a take on what was happening in my family, which was where my grandmother was gradually disappearing through living with a dementia, and she had Alzheimer's. And she had it for quite a long time, so it was a very, very long process, but it got to the point of, you know, she couldn't remember us or where she was or who she'd been married to or, or anything really apart from maybe, like, memories of around six or seven years old. And one Christmas, I just read somewhere online that like music was good for people with, you know, losing memory because they can remember it. And I was like, I don't know if I believe this. And being a musician all my life, and she was a singer as well. We'd never done anything with music with her. We went to the nursing home, as we normally do every Christmas, and said, shall we sing a song and see what happens? And we were like, OK, you know, like nervously sat in a room with everybody else and just started singing carols and not only did she start to wake up in terms of she started to open her eyes and come out of this kind of sleepy lull, but she started to sing the words. And it was just a really miraculous moment in terms of knowing that she was still there and she could remember things. It wasn't just you'd lost her completely. How beautiful. Um, and also the rest of the room joined in. It was just a really wonderful moment. But it it really hit hard that I... Um, didn't understand that side of music and I didn't understand what was going on in the brain. A lot of the tracks that I've been writing had been about escapism and going into different worlds and kind of trying to fathom what was going on. It just all kind of pieced together. So um, I wrote a little kind of thing on Facebook and said, I'd love to know more. Does anybody else have any experience with music and memory? And so many people wrote back and said, oh, yeah, we use music with my granddad when he gets really distressed. And then another friend said, I've got a friend who you should talk to. She went to the rival school that you went to in Barnsley. And uh, she's a scientist and she's working with Alzheimer's. And she's based in London. So I met with her, a wonderful um, scientist called Selena Ray, and she took me to her lab and went through everything she does. And she basically grows brain neurons in Petri dishes to look at the effects and to try and find a cure or ways of slowing down. And it was just mind blowing. So I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot about the facts that one in three of us are affected by 2050. It'll have kind of tripled the amount of people that will have been diagnosed with it. So it is massively on the increase. Yeah, it just started off a love with science and actually finding out more and being more investigated into things. So, you know, like if I'm looking at a synth and I want to discover the synth, then why am I not looking into music in the brain and discovering what makes that tick? Because that's the biggest kind of biological discovery that we've ever had in the world, in, the, in our universe. Like we can go to space and we can go to planets and loads of other things, but we still don't understand the brain and how that works. And what did it look like inside of these Petri dishes did you have a look through yeah so that was the most exciting thing it looked like the stars in the universe that was really quite incredible and when you took a picture of it down the microscope with your iphone it looked like you were looking at the moon as well and it just left a sense of 
circle. We really are all connected and patterns and things are connected. And um, so that sent me off onto the next record, which was called Mary Cassio Journey to Cassiopeia. Yeah, which was which I'm I'm very I've got lots of exciting questions. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful record. I just have to say that in this moment to you. Um, mm, it's you. it's the combination of analogue synths and brass. I've never seen that combination come together. And just the whole idea behind it, which I'm going to ask you more about. Um, would you describe Mary Cassio, Journey to Cassiopeia as a concept album? Yes, Yeah. definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I think concept records are are a wonderful thing Me especially too. now in the digital age where you can stream one track and then that's it yeah i think there's a real call for like that whole package and and you know even the vinyl to be all kind of interlaced with that story or or the idea behind this whole thing it really um, is a whole piece together i mean when you describe it as seven movements it really is seven movements and it's a very emotional journey I've seen a few videos of you talking about the character of Mary Cassio. Could you tell us a little bit more about her? Yeah, so she, um, you know, when you're making a record or anything and you're in the studio, you, you become sometimes a bit jaded or tired. And so I uh, always had, we've got loads of Cassio keyboards in the back cupboard. So I'd go put on my glasses and put on these like little tango waltz beats and just dance around the studio with the, my glasses and playing the beats and... And uh, I just loved the name Mary Cassio. I just thought it was really good fun. And Mary is a name that, in my middle name, but also a name that I've always shied away from as a kid. I always never tell people what my middle name was because it was so old-fashioned at the time. And now, obviously, I love it. But uh, Mary Cassio became this kind of, like, fun thing in the studio. So whenever there was always a bit of tension or something when we were mixing Awake Boys Dreaming or trying to, you know alleviate and make, make the atmosphere different I would I would get out Mary Cassio and, and what's Mary Cassio's story so she then developed from this kind of Cassio keyboard world and in fact there isn't even a Cassio on the album into instrumental tracks came out but it wasn't until the brass band got in touch and said would you like to do something with synthesizers and and colliery brass band and obviously being from a child from playing in brass bands I was like oh my god this would be amazing yeah. Mary Cassio I, you know this story of like you know where I grew up there's these wonderful old miners terraces and a lot of people don't leave there like my old neighbours who are now in the 90s are still there have never left don't really go into town anymore don't leave and um, one neighbour in particular was like a great trombonist and used to play saxophone and have a love for music and used to pass me records as a kid and and I just felt like Mary Cassio was this maybe a nod or a homage to like Delia Derbyshire and Daphne Aram people that were maybe just forgotten in their old age and much like my grandmother you just forget about them because maybe they've forgotten about you but it doesn't mean they're not there anymore and she became this character that maybe was an inventor and in her back garden is an, a shed of like amazing instruments and a telescope and a dream to go to Cassiopeia and see this place that she's dreamed of going all her life and leave this mining town behind and you know at the time it was the vote for Brexit and everything so there was all this kind of thing about 
Every time the news went somewhere to interview local people, they would always go to Barnsley and there would be someone on TV going, oh yeah, you know, get immigrants out of here and all this. And you're just like, there's, there's nobody in Barnsley, what are you talking about? Yeah. And it felt like a real kind of like, well, I'm going to take them to outer space and they're going to go there and realise how open the world is. Would you say that she's almost like an alter ego or like an amalgamation of childhood? I mean, it, you know, she, she could almost be a graphic novel character yeah. as well. Yeah, and, you know, in my mind, she's this little old lady, but she's a genius, but she's never told anybody. And the fact that then she goes on this journey into outer space, she goes from goodbye Earth first track and she leaves sunrise through the dusty nebulas when she finally gets into outer space and looks back at the back at the sun or our sun yeah the journey continues through the seven parts until the very end which is the planet of past souls yeah each track was improvised in terms of i would use just one synth and then improvise around that and then literally use those soundscapes it was more again like the music box it was a therapeutic way for me to kind of contrast what else was going on at the time so um i would put on like nasa landing like unedited things from youtube and and i'd use the oblique strategy cards brian eno and lay them out and every um half an hour kind of turn them over like religiously and then have to do what it said and a lot of the tracks came about just from doing that. I'm just going to jump in here. For those of you who don't know the Oblique Strategies, they are a set of cards created by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt and you can draw them from a deck and they help resolve any creative dilemmas. Let's get back to Hannah. Um, So there's a freedom and 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 a kind of, you know, no restrictions that really came with that record. And the planet of past souls has a recording of your grandfather as a chorister. Did I read that correctly? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought that was so special. It gave it, it gave the record that slightly hauntology feel to it. Yeah, it was. That was a record that was made in 1927. Wow. When he was 13, it was one of the first ever recordings of a, a choir boy, and it was made in Manchester Cathedral. They made it, and it, the, something to do with it hadn't set properly or it hadn't been recorded quite as good as they wanted, so they went back and his voice had broken by the time they'd gone back, so they never re-recorded it. But um, it was played at his, at, at his funeral, and I never had a copy of it or anything, and I just found it on YouTube. And I just, oh, my gosh. So I ripped it off YouTube. <laughs> I couldn't believe it that it was there. It was so amazing. Um, I found recordings of my mum on YouTube as well. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing <laughs> what know, people crazy. find. You know, this planet where she, Mary Cassie, steps out on just felt like maybe she thought that was Cassiopeia. She steps out into this world of wind and rain, which was recorded and sampled on my phone from a caravan in Donegal. The memories start to float out through her ears and start to kind of be dispelled into the atmosphere. So the sounds of like the music box and my grandfather singing just start to come out into the atmosphere and start to be lost. It felt like a real kind of nod back to the Alzheimer's and the record that was previous. Really left a question of, is this journey real? Or is this part of Mary's imagination? And she's just sat in her back garden daydreaming in the sun or something. Or is this like her passing on into another life and another realm? What I love about the way you're talking about all of this is, in a sense, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And that's... 
that's the path of any artist or any musician is it, it, it it's always about yeah i love this idea of questioning whether something is real or not because i think we all we all feel that to a certain extent so what synthesizers did you use when that you were improvising on so i had a geno 60 my go-to instrument which is incredible there was a jupiter 4 and a cog monopoly and, a mini and these Moog. are all analog synthesizers. They're all analog yeah. synthesizers, and the Mini Moog is from around sixty, no, maybe early seventies. Sorry, and the rest are more eighties, early eighties synths. And the Korg Monopoly is this giant kind of big machine. It's very long. It's got lots of knobs. You use it. It's great bass synth. But this one was broken and it did my head in. And But because the Brian Eno oblique strategy card had said, I turned it over and it had said, use the thing that really frustrates you or something like that, I had to use it. So I had to get some kind of sounds out of it. So I got these really amazing frequencies and eventually found a few notes that I could tune. And that became um, Life is on the Horizon, which is track five. Do you use all of these synthesizers live? I did in the first concept. And okay. it was the worst thing I could have ever done. <laughs> it, was, um, it all worked beautifully and it was a wonderful moment with the brass band. The brass band in itself is an incredible sound force and things. But what happened in that very first concert was we started to get feedback and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. It was yeah. just like this wondrous sound. Yeah. And it just went on and on. And then I realised it was coming from the Korg Monopoly, the broken one. And it was just somehow resonating with the room. And just uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, after that, I've just started using new ones. So I've got a little Moog mother and a Mofo Dave Smith and um, a new Moog a Sub 37. So I use that for the bass synth. Fabulous, fabulous. What is your favourite bit of tech in terms of music tech that you use god yeah i mean there's quite a lot of of things but actually i think the most handiest tool out of everything and something that has made a massive difference to my recording is a compressor called an la610 it's just changed everything so even when you record a synth into it or you record your voice into it it just sounds so much more magical than just going through just your standard kind of like audio device yeah it's expensive but it's the best thing i've ever spent money on right could you talk a little bit about arranging the brass for the mary cassio project there is something magical about brass bands in terms of they feel very haunting in terms of the past there's a lot of melancholia linked to them. And especially when you hear them play, it just seems to evoke something. And I don't know whether it's that force of sound overwhelming, maybe the breath of 30 people joining together and really playing through these, what are, you know, I suppose alien voices in a sense, because you're playing your your sound through something and it's producing something else. Scoring for them was a really wonderful in terms of thinking about what frequencies that they work at. So they have a certain sound frequency that goes across. And the best way for me to approach this project was to think what is missing. So I would use a lot of the subs that you wouldn't get or maybe like the lot of the bass end and also the higher frequencies as well. Yeah. And so then when you hear it live, you get this real full spread that just kind of hits you on the very loud moments. And then when it's the very quiet moments, it's so delicate and so beautifully played by them because they are just astounding players um 
it evokes a lot of emotion. A lot of people cry and even myself I always have to hold back the tears on certain moments because it's just so overwhelming the sound not in a harsh way just in this just powerful way as if like every waveform in the in the air is shaking and vibrating it's really magical knowing that and kind of making that decision made the scoring of it a lot easier to understand so um a lot of the synthesizers that I'd written in the beginning I had to be not precious about anymore and actually give them away to lines in the brass band again going back to the track life is on the horizon that ended up now as a a duet between the flugelhorn and the cog monopoly and before that was just like two lines just going together but now it's like a really wonderful weaving of both of the worlds together wow well thank you for talking me through that um (laughs) i wanted to ask you who is your favorite woman in tech Yes. Well, I think it's without doubt it's Laurie Anderson. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and um, The queen. They're definitely yeah. the queen and, you know, she's such a role model and I've never found anyone else yet that I can really look up to that's innovative in that way. I think the power to do something so different at that time and, and be bold with it has stayed and it will stay with me probably for the rest of my life but I think absolutely when you have a role model you've got to keep them strong and keep them going and she's definitely kept strong and kept going and has stayed we have all of these issues these days around authenticity and staying true to yourself and she has completely and did it at a time and and got the commercial success as well which as to my understanding was unexpected to her at that point Uh, do you have any favorite women in stem science, technology, engineering and mathematics. You mentioned the female scientist who was from the rival school in Barnsley. Yes. I quite like that story. (laughs) Yeah, Selena Ray. She's, um, yeah, Selena is definitely the person I look up to. In fact, this morning I looked online and she'd been awarded uh, an amazing kind of grant because of her passion in investigative science. As I've delved into my research around the WITCH project, I've been going to lots of women in tech conferences and events and things. And the one thing that keeps coming up is a lot of women feel this lack of confidence with technology. And they also feel a lack of confidence in in stepping forward and presenting their projects. What have your experiences been? I don't deny I haven't ever felt like that. I've never felt it because I'm a woman, if you know what I mean. I've yeah. always felt it just because I'm an artist and a person I'm still creating and learning every day. Maybe women are sometimes a bit more humbler and just a bit more kind of show their talent rather than talk about their talent. And I think, you know, you, you do get quite a lot of guys that are just like talk more than, than they actually can do. Yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, but I'd... I suppose that's just who you're with. There's also a lot of women I've met who are exactly the same. So, um, But yeah, I've never had any problems with that because I've always made sure that if I don't know something, I'll go and learn it yeah. and don't care who who it is that I learn it from. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's really important. So yeah. it's, it's sad to hear that people, women are also feeling really unconfident about it. Le- skills and stuff yeah I mean not everybody I I think when you know it's 
it's just an observation. For me, I'm still trying to work out where that lack of confidence comes from. I'm not necessarily blaming men and I'm not necessarily trying to look for a blame, but there's been this general lack of confidence or people feeling like they need a certain home, maybe, you know, they need a project like Witch or they're all something similar mm. to feel represented in. So as far as I'm concerned, I just find it that I love doing it because I'm so attracted to the talent. Like personally, I, I was a real technophobe or I think for whatever reason, I'd convinced myself that it was all too difficult and that I was rubbish at it, you know, and there again, I don't know where that came from. So doing witch and putting the witch project together has been about me healing in a way. And also because I'm really passionate about culture and I'm really passionate about creative women. It's just been easy because they just keep turning up in my life. That's a fabulous thing. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. Um, I know that you're a self-releasing woman as well as being a woman in tech. What advice would you give to other creative women go for it (laughs) (laughs) find other people that are similar to you and hold them tight and learn from each other and go for it you know self-releasing is one of those things that people might have shied away from but for me it's worked amazingly well because I've been able to control the rights to my music and it's had loads more benefits than if I had been signed But not only that, you know, in the very beginning, I don't think anyone believed in what I was making anyway. So it was just a way for me to go, right, well, I'm going to explore this and I'm going to go for it in a way. So, yeah, go for it. Thank you to Hannah Peel for being my guest. Find out what she's up to on social media and go and see her live. And thanks to you for downloading. Please do subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. It makes all the difference. Please come and say hello and join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which? That's W-I-T-C-I-H. See you next time. Bye-bye. Colliery. Colliery. Like cauliflower. Like a collie dog and a cauliflower. Okay. (laughs) 